Rugger Matrix America is brought to you by the USA Sevens International Rugby Tournament. Don't forget, the biggest rugby party in the USA is slated for February 10 through 12, 2012 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The USA Sevens International Rugby Tournament brings the United States and 15 other top international sevens teams to the American stop on the World Series circuit. And it's three days of thrilling action. Go to usasevens.com for details and great hotel and ticket packages. And don't forget also, if you're a player, the Las Vegas Invitational is where you can play rugby before seeing the USA Sevens, presented by Stations Casinos. The LVI is the biggest tournament in the country and offers sevens and fifteens playing opportunities for all levels, uh, men and women, really fun. Go to lvirugby.com for details on how to sign up and get great USA Sevens ticket deals and special rates at Stations Casinos Hotels. And Rugga Matrix America is also brought to you by RugbyImports.com. Fans can go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby outfitting needs. Whether you're kitting out your team with your their American-made jerseys, stocking up on training supplies, or just getting a new pair of boots, Rugby Imports has all you need for on the field and off. Go to RugbyImports.com. <laughs> This is Rugger Matrix America. And welcome, everybody. This is Alex Goff, editor of RugbyMag.com, welcoming you to show number 70 of Rugger Matrix America. And we have a great guest uh, with us, and that is USA assistant coach in charge of defense, Mike Tolkien. We'll bring him in in a second. And we also have Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean with the show and Bruce, you know, um, I was reading that column that you wrote for rugbymag.com on uh, no longer minnows, which, um, I really enjoyed reading and I was really pleased that you wrote it for us because it was kind of a surprise that you said, Hey, you know, I've got this column, worked it up and guess what here I've got something. Um, and I thought it was, uh, you made a couple of interesting points. Part of that being that, uh, um, we have the players, we have the, the athletes. It's not uh, a case of just, running around saying, oh, we don't have guys who can run and catch and pass. Yeah, the biggest thing, Alex, is that we have to get out of an excuse mentality and we need to use the resources we have to best develop the players that we have. And and that doesn't mean try not trying to get further and, and more athletic, um, athletically gifted players. But I think it it's a matter of most of what makes people – great sportsmen is their mentality, their persistence, their desire, their drive to be great, their drive to go the extra effort. And then I thought also that the coaches really have that drive to make that happen. And I think that within a coordinated system, coaches, players, and everybody can really work to develop each guy as an individual. And then when they come there with an individual thought process and individual skills that we can mold them and coordinate them into a team. And and one of the things Mike's going to get into is how it's tough with everybody being disparate and different systems and different things that they can possibly put a few things together where guys are fully understanding by talking to them regularly. And I think that that's a big factor. And, and, and as I've alluded to in the article, I thought that one of the reasons Ossentowski was very successful in 2007 and he was not a great tight head prop, wasn't even a tight head prop. They had wanted him to play hooker, loose head and everything else. 
is that he did heavy work with Bill LeClaire and and Mike Petrie. You know, I was there throwing balls off the off the, the, the rafters at Xavier like he was getting a line out as he was whipping the ball to Mike and they were going through all kinds of different drills and different mental aspects as to being a, a great rugby player. And I thought that if we did that with all of our players and, and really talked to all of our coaches who had these players in their environments, that these coaches could do things and help our players and kind of coordinate efforts that maybe there's five guys in Chicago and you can get a couple line out lifters, couple throwers and things like that. Like how can we make our throwers better? How can we make our tight heads better in our nines and tens and, and, and build from there. And I think that if we did that, we can change the face of American rugby relatively quickly because I think that that's what we need to do. We need to develop fully functioning excellent players who have a multiple range of skills. And I think that a little bit of coordination and organization would do that. I thought it was a great column and you really should check it out uh, on rugbymag.com. Go to the premier section, look under columns and you will see it. And the other big uh, thing that I wanted to say about uh, our, our regular panel, and that is uh, Pat Clifton. For those of you who don't know, Pat Clifton has actually been working for rugbymag.com on a sort of a contractor basis and um, he is now a full-time employee with Rugby Magazine, and uh, uh, we're pretty excited about that. And how you can help him, by the way, is make sure that you send, uh, especially if you're in a, a small league that, that is very difficult for people to pay attention to, send him information about stuff. Don't, don't complain to him that he's not paid attention to you, but if your league is not, you know, your, your website's not functioning, something like that, uh, contact Pat and uh Go to the uh, the contact page on the website and contact him and get him the standings and get him some information because he needs that. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, Pat. Uh, um, I guess I guess the message is I own you now. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm happy to be owned. Somebody, at least somebody's <laughs> taking me under their uh, under their their roof. So yeah. No, I'm happy to be. A, I, I love working for Rugby Mag. I love rugby. I love writing about it. Um, so obviously, very happy with uh, the recent development and. Hopefully, uh, it's just uh, the start of a long relationship. Absolutely. I'm still a slave. You're still a slave. That is true. You are still... <sighs> yeah, you, we're, we're, we're still taking advantage of you. Well, we, uh, speak, well, I don't think we're taking advantage of him, but we're happy to have him on the show. Uh, Mike Tolkien is our guest on the show, and Mike Tolkien, uh, head coach of New York Athletic Club, head coach of Xavier High School, won a national championship with uh, both of those in one year, which is... Uh, uh, take some doing, and also the assistant coach in charge of defense for the USA national team. And uh, and you know, if you want to say anything about the Eagles, they certainly played good defense. And Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Good to be here. And Mike, just starting off, you're you're just a, a, a couple of weeks back from the World Cup, uh, not even really. And and how was that experience for you personally, and and as you saw for the team as a whole. I thought it was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, for uh, in the 90s, we had done uh, under-19 tours when the tech team first began to New Zealand every other year for a month. And so I knew that we'd be welcome. They, they would be mad, and uh, they'd be great hosts. But, you know, this is the biggest stage, and uh, they really did a tremendous job. And it, it was all that we expected it to be, and, you know, and probably more. They couldn't have been more hospitable. Uh, it's great for us to have great practice facilities, you know, everything at our disposal. 
uh, and, 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 and towns who loved having us there, rolled out the red carpet, like I said, and gave us press. And everyone was so friendly. And, you know, I, I think everyone, you know, worldwide, so many people really are intrigued by American athletics. And then you add the element of kind of, you know, as we've been called, you know, a sleeping giant or a mystery in rugby, you know, whatever you want to call it, there's that element to it that, you know, they're intrigued by American rugby in particular. So the experience was great from that aspect. And then on top of that, preparing to play, you know, the big teams, the Ireland, the Australias, the Italy's, and, and knowing that the intensity of Russia, you know, them targeting us for their win uh, was there. So preparing for the four games was really challenging, and I, I think that any coach loves doing that. It brings real adrenaline to you. So the whole experience was top rate. When we evaluate the performance of the USA team, the number one thing is the fact that they played first of all that they played hard for 80 minutes i think every fan wants to see that that even against australia they the the guys battled really hard but also and maybe take the australia game out of this because it was a it was a different lineup and and different preparation but uh defensively uh they looked really strong and 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 you know held russia for with no tries despite uh, some really close calls and things like that and um tell us a little bit about the defensive preparation uh for the team well you know it was um i'd say first of all it was good to have the guys for an extended period of time you know most of our assemblies were in a context of playing uh three games in three weeks where we had to have a day off you know for the guys to rest uh, short practice Friday, we really weren't doing much. Um, and then getting everything else in, in terms of attack, set pieces, uh, special teams. So you had small amounts of time to really to pick out one thing or two things to work on. Whereas this time, you know, we had maybe 10 days, 12 days, where we just had time to practice, to get a little physical, to be thorough with things that we wanted to work on. You know, for example, one of the things that we spent a lot of time uh, before New Zealand and in New Zealand was our set-piece defense. You know, we spent whole sessions on our line-out defense. Um, and that's something that we didn't have the luxury of doing before, where we kind of spent short amounts of time in, uh, you know, in team runs doing that. But we had the luxury of doing that and making adjustments, not having to worry about, uh, you know, guys getting uh, injured so close to the game or getting fatigued so close to the game. You know, we can get physical because we were seven, eight, nine days out. Uh, and I think that was a real luxury that helped us, a uh, luxury uh, that helped us get the team a lot more better prepared. Uh, so I think that made a difference. And I think, you know, once the guys got over the fact they made the World Cup team, the adrenaline was there, and the ability, the desire to do well on the world stage was there. Mike, what was the main thing? That you know, I mean, you have a you have a certain philosophy about fundamentals and 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 being in shape and all that. What was the main thing that that you really were able to to get forth to these guys? Because they're coming from a lot of different teams and a lot of different systems. How how was that a challenge, and how did you overcome that? Yeah, you know what, Bruce. It's um, one of the challenges we have versus, uh, and maybe it's a tier two thing. It probably is. Um, if you look at the Tier 1 nations, most of their players come from more or less a homogenous system. You know, so Super four, super 15 teams, you know, the Kiwis, the Aussies, the South African teams, all more or less have a, 
you know, the fundamentals and principles of defense down. So, you know, you know, a coach or a teammate do something a little different, but they basically play defense the same way and know the principles of it, the premiership, the Magnus League. You know, those, those players week in and week out perform against a high level and they have, you know, the defensive principles. I think with us and some other Tier 2 nations is that, you know, we might have five guys in the premiership, a couple guys in Division One some guys playing in France, a couple in Italy, you know, one in Japan, uh, a whole bunch in different clubs in America. And, you know, I think in short assemblies and things like Churchill Cup, all of a sudden you bring together, you know, six, seven, eight different systems uh, and, and trying to get everyone on the same page quickly. Uh, that presents a real big challenge, uh, you know, I think not only for the defense, but probably for the attack as well. And, you know, it feels like, you know, just taking the Churchill Cup, for example, by the time it ended, you know, against Russia in the summer, we were just starting to get ourselves together, playing better than we had, and then it's over. You know, this time we had the World Cup, and we had a lot of time beforehand, so you know that worked out. And I think it, it should show. I think it should show, you know, the American people and, and people around the world that if we have the time, we have the athletes. You know, we, we might be lacking in a few categories uh, where we need to build, but we can do it if we have the time. You know, to, to put this together and really get everyone on the same page operating together. I um I ask this question of coaches and and players, and I get a very different response. But uh, you know, sometimes coaches take the opportunity to just say, "Yeah, I knew what I had all along. I knew my players are great, and really dote on their players." Um, and some of the ones who I think maybe are a little more honest with themselves um, say, "No, they people really rose to the occasion." But for you, uh, when you're watching these games, and I know it was a surprise to pretty much everybody watching it, the resilience, especially in Ireland, um, of your team uh, inside your own 22 of your defense, did you know how just how good your goal line defense is going to be? Or were you even a little pleasantly surprised by by the stands that they made in Ireland and throughout the World Cup defensively inside the 22? No, Pat, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. I I knew, you know, to a degree we had it in us because over the last two and a half years we've showed, you know, we've gotten a lot better at scrambling and, and getting back. And, uh, you know, we've gone up and down in it. Um, but I was always pleasantly surprised. You know, I knew they had them in and I knew they, you know, they had the heart, they had the hustle. But they really brought it to a different level in those games. And when we came out in that Ireland game, you know, we had a, a tough start. I think there was a line break. And I think uh, Roland Zuniulo came over and made a big hit, throwing the ball loose. And then Ireland continued to have it. And you could see the play lining up, and Taku came over and smashed O'Driscoll as he got the ball, you know, coming from the outside in. And jawed it loose again, and, you know, the crowd was going nuts. And, you know, I, I think that really, at that moment, we knew that we were going to settle in for a game. You know, if, if Ireland was going to score, they were going to really have to earn it. And then we were going to bring the hits in. And so that, that was a nice surprise. And the guys really rose to the occasion. And, uh, you know, they, they were willing to put their bodies on the line. You know, and they knew it was at stake. And, you know what, they knew they had a, a small swimmer of a chance and they were going to go for it. So I, I think we were all as a staff, we were really happy with that and, and, and pleasantly surprised. Mike, you talked a little bit about, you know, how, how, do we, how we go forward and how we – how, how we broaden our reach of, of you know, the philosophy in terms of the coaching and, and how we get more people involved in things. You talk about the, you know, the, that we don't have a homogenous um, 
coaching platform for everybody to show up on the national team. Is there, is there a vision or a model that, that you espouse to that, that um, whether it's a national team coach or it's a national team setup or it's a high performance director or somebody, director of coaching, somebody who can perhaps bring more players under um, uh, a unified coaching umbrella? Not to say... You know, every scrum half needs to pass this way. Everybody needs to uh, run this line on this play. But but to at least expose people to general and basic philosophies that American rugby players have so that when they come into, um, into a national team assembly, they've got a leg up. Or is that even possible? Well, I, I definitely think it's possible. I think that, a, you know, if we can get someone in the position of uh, – you know, where the director of rugby can take some elements of our game where we need to be fundamentally sound, uh, you know, starting with the most important ones, you know, can we, for example, uh, if I just take two examples, you know, if we can start really getting together, you know, a, a, a log jam of front rowers, you know, and maybe that's from an early age, you know, from, from high school uh, and start taking some of our good athletes and, and leaving them there at front row through high school and college. You know, one of the tendencies is um, we take a, a better athlete as they get into high school and college and, you know, put them at the flank, put them at center. And, of course, you know, of course we all want to do that. But is there that guy that, yeah, he can play eight and he can be pretty dominant, but, you know, if we look forward past those years, he can really be a dominant prop and he can start learning at the age of 12 or 13. And by the time he's 20, he's had seven real good years at prop. And he's an athlete who could have played eight but he can really make an impact at front row. You know, can we start building a stockpile of those? Um, I think certainly next, you know, if we can have an individual director of rugby take our halfbacks and start teaching halfback combinations, hey, you guys are involved in the game in a much different, much more impactful way as tactical decision makers. Here are some core exercises for coaches and for players, you know, to start using. And like I said, everyone's not going to pass the same or, you know, strong has only going to all pass the same. But, you know, I, I kind of think that, hey, we start them out that way. You know, it might be like like writing. You know, we all start out with the, the fundamentals of writing. And then if you're a great writer, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, you're writing novels and getting published, that's fine. You know, if you're a strong half who can master the fundamentals of lefty, righty passing, box kicking, um, things like that, organizing, you know, then... You know, once you've mastered those, then you can start doing the skills that bring you up, you know, to an elite status. But I really think that if we can start taking combinations like halfbacks, like front rows, like number eights, like back threes, and if we can really start focusing on specific coaching, you know, can we take the boxes off on these particular skills? And we'll start from there. Uh, on defense, can we start taking off the box on, hey, this is how we play against an overload defense, you know, four against two. This is what we do in a tackle area. You know, just the really fundamental things that I think most coaches can, can start, you know, no matter their experience, can start to put in place. And if there's a coach, you know, who's not sure, hey, where do I start? Because there are plenty of people who say, I don't, there's so much out there, I don't know where to start with my nine and ten. You know, maybe we can implement through a director of rugby. Okay, here's some core nine and ten exercises and conversations that we can have you know, and getting them to think about tactical decisions, you know, and then they can go and then they can start feeling confident. Hey, I got four things that, or two, three, four things that I can, I can start with. And then we can get them going from there. 
Yeah, well, Pablo Pablo Picasso could actually draw a horse that looked like a real horse. So he he was trained in the classic, uh, you, uh, you know, the, the classic artistic school before he went the direction that he went. Uh, but so down, uh, down the line in ten years, if we can get a, a Picasso at number ten, you know, that would be a good thing. That'd be great, uh, Mike. You we talk about national team coach and national team high performance. Uh, the the national team coaching position is is technically not vacant at the moment, but um, I think everybody uh, assumes that Eddie O'Sullivan will not be back, and and I believe he, um, he's you know his office is empty in Boulder. Um, uh, are you a candidate for that job? Well, you know, as you said, uh, you know Eddie's still under contract as a head coach, and uh, he doesn't expire until December. And I know he's putting together a World Cup report, so. Uh, you know, certainly, at, as it is now, he's the head coach of uh, the United States, and uh, I'm the defensive coordinator, and that's you know that's all what's going on right now. So well, that's all I've uh, about, on. <laughs> How about we? If are you interested, a job you'd be interested in? Uh, I don't know, Pat. You know, I I, I don't want to comment because you know if if it was at the end of Eddie's tenure, you know, if he decides to leave or what happens, you know, that's something that we'll have to look at the landscape and. And see, you know, how everything fits together. So, I can't really comment on that because I'm just at this point looking at our post World Cup uh, stuff. You know, checking out the fence and how we can improve it, and kind of my role in in playing under the system. Mike, is there anything you would have changed about the approach to the World Cup in terms of of your role as a defense coach? Yeah, you know, that's, a, that's a good question, Bruce, because I uh, I always, you know, after practices, after games, you know, I'm always thinking about, you know, could, could we have spent more time, was this more important to spend time on than this? You know, was X the thing that we could have really stuck it to them uh, rather than Y? So I can't, I can't say, because in the days leading up to the, uh, the first match, you know, those 10 days, you know, we were able to get a lot covered. Um, I think, uh, you know, looking back prior to the World Cup, I would have spent more time on set piece defense. You know, we kind of, you know, we talked about it and we did it in team runs, but I would have spent a lot more time because I think we could have made a bigger impact. But, you know, I, I'm glad that we realized it, uh, as we got towards the World Cup and we did, we did address it and I thought we were pretty sound in that aspect. So, you know, that, that's one area that uh, I may have wanted to address a little earlier. But, you know, in terms of preparation and things we did, you know, I, I was pretty happy that we touched the things that we needed to. And there's always some stones left unturned or, or some things that you address but not as much as you want to. And, you know, believe me, I always, and I imagine every other coach in their field, you know, always feels at the end of the session, you know, uh, could I have addressed this a little more than that? You know, I feel comfortable we, we address the major things that we have to, to improve. And can I follow that up with another question about, you know, a lot of times, especially when we're coaching together, there's the there's a defensive system and your roles within the defensive system, and then there's the technique of actually making the stop and making the decision in the tackle area. Are you happy with the way with with the way that you handled the the technique versus the systematic approach to to what you're trying to do? Because it seemed as if 
the player's tackle technique was stronger in the World Cup than maybe it had been in the lead-ups. Yeah, you know, we did, um, you know, obviously, you know, your contact area work uh, is going to be kind of limited. Even though we did have time, you still can't really uh, beat the guys up too much in, in, in training. So we did do some tackle area live stuff, uh, of course. But um, after training, we did a lot of tracking. Um, and Dave Williams uh, did a bit before in our warm-ups uh, at practice. Um, and after training, you know, our extras, uh, we, we usually had about 10 guys over there doing a lot of uh, tracking work, you know, uh, working on their technique, uh, their footwork especially, and, and also sticking in tackles. Uh, I think one of our problems was not necessarily guys being, not being there, but, but sticking. You know, they hit the front end of it fine, but they wouldn't follow through. They wouldn't, they wouldn't concentrate on the back end of the tackle. So we were kind of working on footwork and following through, and, you know, we added a couple of little dimensions to those tracking drills that helped guys stick a little better. So, you know, I was happy we addressed that, and, um, you know, we addressed some of the, some of the issues of, uh, you know, what we're going to do after the tackle is made in the contact area. And that was more of a decision-making you know, when to go in and when to go out. And I, I thought that's where we had our best improvement as the tournament went along, is uh, guys not getting in on this necessarily. You know, it, it, you know, if you're not needed, fold out there and rebuild the line. And I think as the tournament went, we got better at that. Is that one of the, that's, that's one of the things that, say, was kind of the point of my article, and it seems like is – Things like tracking and tackle technique and, 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 and sticking on to it and, and, and dealing with the front end and the back end of the tackle, that those are things that a high-performance director, director of rugby national team head coach can bring to players not only individually but bring to the coaches of the players on those specific teams. Say, for instance, somebody's playing for the Chicago Griffins that Wes Parks it understands that these players need to deal with that and and he can maybe set up some side practices for the specific players in that team to work on that. Would you uh would you concur with that statement? I would I would definitely and I think, you know, there are there are coaches, you know, like you mentioned Wes pretty switched on guy. And, and there are coaches around the country like that who are pretty switched on and, you know, kinda of know the routine, can always, you know, use a little feedback of what maybe the national team coach would like them to do. But I think there are a whole string of, of coaches, you know, who are getting into it. They know their rugby, but, want, you know, are looking to learn more. And I think, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I think sometimes people don't know where to start. They're looking for a rope to grab onto. You know, they, they, they see a whole vast field of, hey, how do I make a fly half better? There's so much for them to do. Where I think if we started a really basic checklist, and then move from there, they can feel a lot more confident. You know, if they, if they hear from, you know, some of the top coaches, you know, if they hear from a, uh, you know, an Eddie Sherman or Nigel Melville, you know, and it says, hey, I can do that. I can teach my guys how to pass left, how to pass right, how to get a back line started, you know, about tactical ticking. I think that coaches will really feel confident. Hey, that's a great starting point. I can do that, and I can have my nines and my tens really have a good starting point for fundamental uh, play at 9 and 10, you know, or whatever position we're talking about. And I think with the explosion, and, you know, I think uh, Pat and Alex, you know, you guys go through stats a lot with growth of, of youth and, and high school rugby. We have so many kids playing now that I think we're really going to need uh, good coaches 
you know, guys who have just retired from rugby, um, getting involved with youth programs and high school programs because we have a lot of kids who need good coaching. One more question before we take a quick break, and then we then we sort of going to change tack a little bit with Mike. But uh, real quick, Mike, who is the most improved defensive player on the Eagles in the World Cup? Um, it's a tough one. But you, you know why? Yeah, it's because you know guys really, really did a good job out there. You know, to a man. Um, I will say. Paul Emmerich won uh, two sheriff's badges for, for the best hits of the games, but that's—I don't think that's uh, too much of a surprise to anyone. <laughs> no. uh, he, he always plays pretty tough defense. Um, I think you know I—I I, I mentioned this in another interview. Uh, I think Pat Dennehy came around and did a really good job because even though he didn't get a, a whole bulk of playing time, he was a guy who was kind of struggling a little bit with his his contact area work and you know his footwork. And he was a guy who showed up every day after practice and did tracking work. And, you know, I think it was especially true against Australia where he put in some big hits. But when he when he got in games, he, he really improved his defense a lot. So, you know, I was really happy to see that for Pat because he, he was one of the guys who spent a lot of time trying to improve his game. So he did a, he did a good job. Um, I think also, you know, there's a guy that you know, I got on a bit in the, you know, one or two years before is, is uh, Biller. You know, Chris Biller, was, he, he was inconsistent in defense uh, at stretches. But in the World Cup, he, he, he stepped up and he was solid. You know, he made adjustments that we talked about. Uh, his tackling was much more sound. So he definitely made an improvement in his defense. Excellent. Those are two good names. All right, we will be right back. And we will uh, change tack a little bit uh, with Mike Tolkien, USA assistant coach in charge of defense. Don't forget to check out RugbyMag.com for all your rugby news. And also, go to USA7s.com for tickets and hotel information on the USA7s International Rugby Tournament in Las Vegas, Nevada in February. And check out LVIRugby.com or link through from USA7s.com for the Las Vegas Invitational presented by Stations Casinos. And for your rugby equipment needs, look at RugbyImports.com. Okay, well, we're back, and um, Mike, uh, uh, we're we're talking about um, the national team, but we also talked about developing uh, the national team. And Pat, I know you've got a couple of questions on this level, um, but uh, but I just wanted to start it off by saying you you mentioned something about halfbacks and scrum halves, and obviously uh, Mike Petrie was uh, was your guy at, at Xavier, and um, and he's gone all the way through the ranks, Captain Xavier, captained. The U19s, the All-Americans, Penn State, uh, captain of the USA, he's captain everybody. Um, but but you look past Mike and you look at uh, scrum half and fly half, you don't see an awful lot of USA-developed young players. Or do you? And we just don't have them uh, right in front of our faces right now, but are they there? Yeah, you know, I think they are there. Um, you know... Uh, both of those, uh, that, that question is, you know, I'm a little ambivalent towards it because I do think that we need to have more. When we, when we have a, a trial camp, you know, I think there should be six or seven, you know, guys knocking at the door that, you know, hey, all of these guys are good enough to be there and they're all going to compete and make the selection very difficult. And I don't think that always happened in the past. 
Uh, and I need, I, I think that needs to happen for us to be good, you know, in the, in the skill positions. Um, but having said that, you know, just going around the, the, the high schools, you know, I see more kids who can pass off both hands accurately, you know, who can kick from the base. Um, I think one of the things that's a little lacking is uh, leadership ability, uh, you know, in terms of talking, and I think also tactics. You know, I think I think we can easily, you know, if we if we go through the steps, we can teach guys lefty and righty passing. We can teach them to use their feet if they have some some skill there. Uh, but I, I think, you know, how we play the game, you know, what's in front of us, uh, and again, that that could be something in the core development of a uh, director of rugby. You know, when is a halfback running? When is he looking to take a couple of steps? You know, a crow hop and hit it forward. Uh, when is he going to set up a wing for a kick? You know, those are all reading elements of the game, and I, I think those are the things where if we can take a, uh, you know, if we can take coaches and put a few scenarios, you know, in there, simple scenarios that they can start with, then they get their halfbacks thinking. Um, so, you know, kind of getting back to your original question, I have seen them out there, and I think they're there. I think we just need to refine them a little bit uh, more with decision-making and organize them. Um, you mentioned the director of rugby role a little bit, um, and I know when we last talked, uh, when we talked to Dan Pan in the last show, Alex kind of uh, talked about maybe splitting up the, the head coaching position into a three-headed monster that had different titles. Do you, um, you know, where do you see it going? Do you think that somebody's going to take over for Eddie and, and that's going to be that? We're going to have a head coach that, in essence, is the, uh, um, the end-all, be-all for the, the national team? Or, or could, could you see a couple different roles developing in terms of maybe a head coach, somebody's in charge of, uh, you know, director of rugby, as you put it? Where do you see it going, and do, could you see it changing? Uh, you know, I, I think it will change a little bit, but, you know, I, I look at um, – you know, I look at two all-black models as kind of a good way and a bad way. Uh, I look at when I think it was Griswold and John Hart were co-coaches in the all-blacks, and co-coaches, and that turned into a disaster. And mm-hmm. then I look at the kind of the coaching staff now of the all-blacks, where you know you basically have three guys there, and they work pretty harmoniously. You know, Graham Henry is kind of you know the centerpiece, and maybe the mouthpiece, and you know he basically you know the buck stops with him, but you know, you see his two assistants, uh, you know, pretty much almost an equal power and, you know, equal trust. So I think that system works pretty well. I think there, there needs to be an identifiable guy on top, you know, in terms of the buck stops here and these are decisions that need to be made. But I guess staff, you know, all working for the purpose of making the United States the best that they can be and having a, uh, a homogenous goal in mind and how we're going to do it. How are we going to get there? How are we going to do it? Let's approach this job and let's let's make a plan and get there together. And I, I you know, I think that that has to happen, uh, you know, in the next uh, in the next years to come. Uh, Mike, following up on that, um, I would assume that if you were going to split this thing up, um, perhaps maybe one person's job would be um, tracking players, especially domestically, um, because the guys that are playing abroad. Um, that are those guys are pretty well known commodities, right? If they have a contract, uh, chances yeah. are our, our staff knows who they are. Here in the states, I'm not. Well, I'll give you a two-handed question: Are there guys that are falling through the cracks? Because I look at a guy like Ryan Chapman, who had been around. He'd played for Glendale, which is a pretty not- you know a notable club people know about. But he, he hadn't played in the Super League. He goes down to the Utah Warriors. Um, he has a little bit of a breakout season in the Super League, and then he gets his invite to the Eagle Camp. 
Um, but even at that Eagle camp, uh, the domestic camp in the spring, he wasn't, I guess he didn't stand out quite enough in order to be really selected. And so he, going forward, he gets trimmed out of the, the Rugby World Cup list as it goes down. And then he plays for the Glendale team that plays against the Eagles. And it seems to me that it wasn't until he was actually seen in a game situation against another high-level competition that he was really able to prove himself. And in this country, if you're not playing in the college premier division, you're not playing in the, in, um, in the Super League, you're probably not getting a lot of people looking at you in a game situation. Um, and it's hard to simulate that, I would assume, in camps. But are there guys that are falling through the cracks? And how could you – what could we do to better – the um the the uh the the pathway to the Eagles. Obviously, we used to have a national All Star Championship. W- what would you to do to it, or, or what do you see? Where where can we improve on the system? Um, so that's the two headed question that I kind of took a long so time to get to. Know, was are yeah, there guys you, falling through the cracks, and what can we do? Hugh Chapman, you know, following up on your example of a guy like Chapman, you know, he was in the camp, he performed well. Um, he really, you know, he was told this. He was uh, literally, you know, at the one or two guys just past the cut. You know, he was right there. And he, he did perform well. He's notable. He continued to be in the conversation as guys in that position are. Um, we just missed the cut in camp, but they re- remain very much in the conversation. So, you know, he, he certainly wanted to not slip through the cracks. And we, we kept monitoring him. His name was always in the conversation. He had a good game against uh, when he played for Glendale, as you mentioned. And, and then he was considered, and, um, you know, he, he was ultimately selected for the Japan tour and, you know, there are circumstances. Uh, I think, you know, to be fair, the public uh, who follow this, you know, don't necessarily know all, all the instances. They might see something like that and say, oh, you know, why the heck wasn't Chapman picked? And, you know, and, and sometimes with players, there are things that are only between the coach and the players in terms of their personal sure. circumstances. So sometimes those things don't get out in public. And, you know, fairly enough, the public doesn't know and they're wondering why. And sometimes those things have to be kept. Well, let me uh, for personal reasons, but let me clarify real quick, Mike, if I can. I don't mean to yeah. say that he fell through the cracks as much as I mean uh, it was. <laughs> I don't know another analogy to go along with it, but the fact that it took a time. I mean, it would have been nice if maybe Ryan Chapman was a well-known commodity, say three years ago or two years right. ago. Not that he wasn't playing yeah. rugby then, but that he wasn't quite noticed yet. Is there, I mean, are, could we notice some of these players and find them a little bit sooner? Maybe John Vandergeesen is another example. Um, but are, can we, are, are we missing? Um, some good rugby years of guys that maybe we could find earlier, and how do we, you know, make sure we're discovering the guys that need discovering? Well, you know, I'll answer that in uh, two, maybe might be three steps. Um, first of all, I think given our resources uh, of people available to look at these players, you know, a head coach and some high-performance guys, you know, we don't have – country doesn't have a lot of money, and therefore we don't have a lot of resources to – to go look at these people um, at lesser or lower clubs. So it's difficult to see every club, uh, you know, especially on the minor scale, to go see them all. So that instance, we're held back a little bit in terms of who we can see. Uh, the second thing, the second part of that, I think, and, you know, this has always been a controversial issue of should you have to play in Super League to play on the Eagles? Um, some people believe in it very much. Some people say that's ridiculous. Uh, I'm one of the people who says that you should have to play in the Super League. And the reason I say that is not because there aren't Division One or Division Two clubs without good athletes and without good coaching and structure. There are. My problem is that they don't get the same type of competition week in and week out. Now, the Super League is not by any means 
a great commodity. They're working on it, but it is the best we have, and it is week in and week out for the most part. Those players are going to see the best competition, whereas you might have a Division One team who dominates, and maybe they have one close game, uh, and they have four blowouts in the season uh, where they're not playing good rugby at all. And that's my main purpose for saying that. And I know it's controversial. Um, and, I, I, again, to reiterate, I think clubs and coaches on the lower levels have some great players, some great coaches, and some great infrastructure. I just don't think they have the comp- competition necessary. So I think if we go prying into those lower levels, we, we spent resources uh, that we don't necessarily have. If we had the bodies to go look at all of them week in and week out, yeah. But right now we don't have those eyes that can do it. And, and we've got to rely on word of mouth for that. The last thing I'll say on this is I thought the colleges did a better job of alerting the coaches, unless they were the first year of the Premier College division. And I thought a lot of coaches did a good job of contacting um, the Eagle staff uh, about players they should look out for. And I think that will grow in the future, and I think that's an important pathway. You know, alert the Eagles, hey, this guy down in Arkansas and Utah and Cal, you know, some of those teams do a great job of saying, hey, two or three guys, here they are, worth looking at, you know, down the road. So we, we definitely need that give and take with the colleges for sure. Mike, do you do you think that um, you still need uh, some kind of territorial or select side competition the way that we still have in the college game? So, you know, if you're not in the college uh, D1A uh, or what was the premier division, you can still go try out for your territorial team and try to get on. And, and, and you know, an example might be Zach Finoglio, who was uh, not a premier division player and, and is probably, you know, tracked now as a real good potential eagle hooker. Um, uh, because he, Absolutely. you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I thought the inter-territorials were a good, uh, I thought it was a good competition. I thought it was a good platform, good venue to see guys. And, you know, as uh, as Pat mentioned in that last question, you know, those are where, that was a venue where we were able to see guys like that, you know, and maybe bring them onto the pathway, you know, get them onto the recognition field, and then uh, move it forward, you know, maybe with, uh, you know, bring them into prominence, maybe they get into a, uh, a major city or a major team, and uh, they get invited into the next camp. Um, you know, and that was, I thought that was a good platform. You know, I, personally, I was, I was sorry to see that go, and uh, I was down at many of those, and they were good competitions, and they served a purpose. That, they, you know, when you're lacking eyes, bring everyone to the limited pairs of eyes, then that's a good thing. Do you think that that could be even more valuable at the schoolboy and collegiate level than necessarily it is at the men's level? Because I think that with email and YouTube and, 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 and the internet and a lot of the communication is quicker now than it might have been 20 years ago. And you tend to be able to find out about players who are 24, 25 years old. You generally know who they are. And, and in many cases probably will have gotten an opportunity to see them, at least on video. Whereas a lot of times with colleges and high schools, kids don't have a choice as to where they're going. They kind of go and play where they're playing and go where they're going. I think like, that's definitely uh, definitely the case. I think if you can get these younger guys involved, and I know the eighth-grade coaches have really done 
fantastic work in getting these guys to venues and getting themselves around to see them. Uh, I think the, the high school the collegiate level championships, um, you know, the all-star championships are a really good idea. You know, and for those reasons that you said, you know, we track 16-year-old kids. You know, we've been playing for five years, and all of a sudden, boom, you see this kid, and wow, phenomenal. You know, he really has a possible future here. Uh, and, you know, if we can see that at 16 years of age, you know, and the experience that he has, you know, we can really get him going in the right direction. So I think there's no doubt about that. This dovetails right into uh, a question that I know that Pat wants to ask about player recruitment basically it's the same thing i asked dan last week and i'll ask you because uh is for some reason college coaches seem to like to keep uh close to their vests and some people are embarrassed with the riches they have in terms of what they're able to give players be it scholarships or how they can get them into you know get them a tab that maybe they can get them into a school that they wouldn't have necessarily uh, qualified for academically but what are you as a high school coach and bruce uh, you could probably answer this as well what are your guys getting because i know a lot of your guys go on to play college rugby where you know what are they? Obviously, there are some people that have scholarships to give out, but where are the schools and what are that are that are able to give something um, when they're recruiting one of your players? And uh, and what and what are players getting nowadays? What are the benefits um, that some uh, of your better players are getting when they go to play college rugby? Uh, I think Pat, the first thing is compared to ten years ago, our guys are going into uh, universities and colleges that have programs with coaches that are looking out for them. Uh, and trying to do the best, you know, with a lot of times with limited resources that they can do. So I know my Xavier guys who go in and the Gonzaga kid and the Jesuit kid and all the other guys, they're mostly going to colleges if they want to play rugby that have a pretty good setup right now compared to 10 years ago where the kids were the coaches, club secretaries, all that. So at first they're getting that. Secondly, uh, it depends on the industriousness of the coach of the college. If they've done their homework and found out the little loopholes and uh, possible scholarships uh, that are available, you know, for non-rugby means, like I know, for example, you know, just taking one example, St. Mary's, you know, had a, uh, I think it was at a ROTC scholarship, Bruce, or something like that, um, where, you know. A certain GPA. Yeah. If you had a certain GPA or if you went to a Christian Brothers school, like at St. Mary's, you can get ten grand lopped off the top if you're just from a Christian Brothers school, or if you have a certain GPA, you get ten grand lopped off the top. And if you have a certain GPA that's even higher with a with a with a quality SAT score, you can get another twelve five lopped off the top. And if you're into acting, you can get another ten lopped off the top. So you can get forty five thousand dollars to go to St. Mary's and not have a damn thing to do with rugby. Yeah, and I think you know not to not to just put St. Mary's there as the only one. Every school would have something like that, you know, in terms of coaches being able to do some homework and find out, hey, we can get this kid a lot of money, you know, even though we can't get it from admissions, you know, a scholarship fund or NCAA, we can get this kid some money. Some schools are getting uh, in-state tuition tax. Uh, that's helpful. That cuts a lot off. Um, we have some kids who are getting um, housing. So it really, you know, at this early point in this early stage of, you know, colleges really getting into doing things for the high school student, it's really a wide variety of things. You know, everything from, you know, maybe a $1,000 scholarship to in-state tuition to some pretty substantial money uh, through various means. Um, you know, some of them are starting also to get some help from the admissions office. Kid who's on the borderline of a pretty good school, you know, is getting that kit 
because he's a rugby player. So at this point, there's a, you know, there's a lot of odds and ends, but I know coaches are, are working to do the right thing. And, you know, it's becoming competitive because they really, you know, they have this Premier League going and there are some good high school programs and it's getting competitive. I actually did a, I did a thing for that I just did by myself and I, I didn't do it for anyone and then I gave it to USA Rugby was basically contacted 120 coaches or something and got their their background to their school, their SAT scores, the cost of tuition, where they're located, rural, urban, this kind of thing, what kind of rugby program they have, their philosophy, and any kind of scholarship opportunities. And there were some very interesting ones. It's on the USA Rugby webpage. I don't know how well they keep it updated. I did it a couple of years ago. And most of the coaches tend to be the same guys. And, and you can probably get a hold of them and check people out. But there was there's a lot of opportunities at various different schools for players at various levels of play from the college premier division down to uh, down to division two and division three colleges. And, you know, like the army coach had guaranteed employment at the end of at the end of your tenure. <laughs> but, I mean, it's funny. It's true, but uh, and but you get some you get some real good rugby in there as well, and I think that if you take a look and I also think that coaches have to be resourceful and industrious in in recruitment process. I think that the 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 high school coaches and and the players themselves need to be industrious and resourceful, and and you know like like at Xavier where players are are steered toward having rugby be a significant factor in where these these guys choose to go to school. It's not the only factor. You know, there's academics, there's location, there's cost, but rugby is a significant factor. And I think that that's probably the biggest change that I've seen from the way people choose their colleges now as opposed to the way they did it even five or ten years ago. Mike, what about um, how, you know, you, you've got a, a player who's been recruited. How important is it for that player to follow up on on his responsibilities? And I look back to um, a time when I was coaching on the girls' side, and I had a player get uh, get a place at a, at a university, and she was a very good player, um, but maybe not in the right place in her life and she ended up dropping out of that program and and you know I, I go back and think well is that coach ever going to uh, believe me when I tout a player to that that coach again so yeah, how, uh, how 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 big a deal is it for and, and do you talk to players about this saying you know I'm going to put in a good word for you here well you better you better live up to that your side of the bargain yeah uh, you know Alex, you know we certainly have have had that situation where you know, players have dropped, and, you know, it's not it's never a pleasant thing. And it also depends on how they do it. You know, if they're, they're players who say, all right, you know, I'm, I'm burnt out from rugby, and I'm just not enjoying it anymore. I'm going to finish the season, and I'm going to, you know, kind of talk to the coach. And then there are players who have, who have dropped, and that's, that's unpleasant and unfair, I think, to our program for the future guys. But I think, it, I think it's really important once a player has made a commitment that he knows that, a lot of the reputation, you know, he's obviously concerned about himself, but a lot of that reputation is riding on the school and the future players of that high school, you know, and getting into that school. 
so I think, you know, you really have to consider, and we do talk to the kids before they leave and tell them, you know, you have a responsibility towards the future of the program, and that's part of it is trying to be a good role model in college and a good teammate and a good player for a coach to coach. You know, and if you have an issue, you have to communicate. Uh, so we, we think that's really valuable here. We think that's important, and we do strongly urge our players to do that. And we're definitely disappointed uh, if we hear otherwise about our players and they're uh, not talking or dropping out or, uh, you know, or getting into other trouble. You know, it's a severe disappointment to us in our program. Well, you, Mike, you've come full circle because you talk about uh, fulfilling the commitment and and the reputation you get from that commitment, and and I think that you go back all the way to the national team and the commitment of the players and of the coaching staff and the reputation they get uh, internationally and and back here at home is a, is a huge, and I think that um, and and I would speak for listeners and readers that uh, when you talk to, to players in the national team, you should convey that, that the fans are proud of them and, and um, are, are pleased with the commitment and the dedication that they've shown, and, I, and I'm sure you agree on that. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the fans who traveled down to New Zealand were great. They were, they were loud. They were boisterous. They were supportive. They were colorful, and that was, that was really spectacular. I don't think I mentioned that in the opening, but awesome, awesome support, and I know every staff member, team member, got a lot of emails. And I just want to let everyone who did support us know that it was really appreciated, 100%, and it was talked about a lot. Um, and, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a long nine months of rugby for me from January to the end of the World Cup. And so there was a lot on the plate to talk about. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a really great experience and a, and, a, and a good nine months. So I'm looking forward to a short break and definitely jumping back into it. Yep, short break indeed. Well, Mike Tolkien, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, best of luck in the new year. Thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, that was uh, an outstanding uh, conversation with Mike Tolkien, who is, uh, uh, you know, it's it, it's great to have these coaches on, and, and I think people find out that not only do we have uh, – good coaches in America, but we have very smart coaches in America and articulate coaches and, and um, really happy to have Mike on the show. Bruce and Pat, great show. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Alex. Definitely enjoy it every week. And I need more columns from you, Bruce, because you, you've now set yourself up. You've set the bar up high, so I need to, the readers will need you. You can make them a little shorter. They'd be a lot easier to edit. <laughs> I, I I used to write columns a lot, and 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 I what, what happened was when I when my neck was broken and and I lost use of my hand, it became really hard to type, and now I'm just starting to get my typing back. But then I need a I need to get another surgery in a couple of weeks to put my hand back in a cast. So we'll see. But at some point, my hand will be able to be able to operate, and when my hand is able to operate, I can I can write a few more articles without being frustrated that I press buttons two and three times at a, in a row because I can't control my hand. I think we can get you some voice recognition software, too. Um, but it has to recognize you know, a New York accent. It has to re- it, it, and it also has to edit out the uh, four-letter words. I'm not sure if it's uh, worked to do that. So four-letter words or eight-letter words or even 12-letter words, we hear some of those as well. Uh, it was uh, a good show and... Uh, um, 
thank you very much for listening. For Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean, this is Alex Goff from RugbyMag.com saying, this is Rugamatrix America. <laughs>